You're listening to episode 34 of Paz de Chipotle, a show that explores the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and brings together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasdechipotle.com. You can subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. great to be back and with the second and final part of the history and present of Mexican coffee. But it has been a while since the first part aired, so let me do a quick recap for you and may I remind you to check the YouTube version of part one and part two for the matter and you will enjoy all the extra material that I've put there for you. Plus, on this episode's blog post on my website pasitipotle.com, I have added a bunch of links about Mexican coffee associations, events and a few of my favorite brands, so you can check that out while you enjoy this episode. So let's rewind the clock and remember what I talked about on the first part of this special. We found out that coffee was first used for culinary purposes in Eritrea, that is modern-day Ethiopia in Africa, around the 9th century. But it wasn't until the 1700s when it was introduced into the Americas by a French naval officer who took some plants to the French Antilles in the Caribbean. And from there, it was disseminated to South, Central and North America. The entry points in Mexico were the coastal states of Oaxaca, Guerrero and Chiapas in the Pacific coast and Veracruz, Tabasco, and Chiapas again, but on the other side, that faces the Gulf of Mexico. During the initial years of the coffee production in Mexico, it was German, Italian, and Swiss investors who were behind all this production and the haciendas that were built in all these states, that pretty much continued working in the 19th and early 20th centuries. The tastes, food traditions, and fashions influenced how Mexicans came to incorporate coffee into their diet and habits. So today, I will share with you how is it that coffee makes it from the fields to your hands and kisses your lips every morning, or every evening, or every night. I'll break down for you what the fancy-pansy speciality coffee is all about, what does a cup of excellence mean, and what is the state of coffee production in Mexico today. Well, let's take a sip and get 
this episode rolling. There are two types of places where you are listening to this episode right now. And no, I'm not clairvoyant. What I mean is that there are basically two types of locations. Either a coffee-producing region, meaning you are in the so-called coffee belt around the equator, as I mentioned on the first part of this coffee special, or you are outside of this area. That means further up or further down the equator. And you rely on international imports to enjoy that lovely copper in your hands. While I spend a fair amount of time in the northern hemisphere, a long way from the coffee belt, right now I'm in the central high plains of Mexico. And last year alone, the total national production of coffee in Mexico reached 839,000 tons of coffee, which made its way to all the continents in the world. Mexico has hundreds of ecotones. An ecotone is where two different ecosystems collide. And in the case of semi-tropical ecotones, that is exactly where crops like vanilla, cocoa, mangoes and coffee thrive. The largest coffee-producing states are Chiapas, with 41% of the total production, followed by Veracruz with 24% and Puebla with 15.3%. Last autumn, I visited the allotments and house of Don Eduardo Vázquez, a small coffee producer from Zapotitlán de Méndez in the mountains of Puebla. This visit turned to be a memorable life lesson in resilience and the unbreakable faith in dedication. That sounds very poetic, right? But the truth is that life has been on a constant pendulum of bonanza periods and bankruptcy. Small producers like Don Lalo are key to source high-quality batches of coffee that can reach incredibly high prices. But they are also vulnerable to the fluctuations of the international market, changes in weather patterns and plagues, as I will further explain. But let's begin by filling the gaps of what has to happen before you pour a cup of coffee. What we normally know as coffee beans, technically, they're the half seeds of coffee cherries, that have been dried, roasted, grounded and brewed to produce the drink we know as coffee. And it all starts with a sprouting seed, the promise of life. After sprouting, coffee seedlings or young plants are carefully nursed in shaded beds. Once they are strong enough, young bushes are planted in the fields and will grow for three to five years in average until they reach their maturity and start consistently producing cherries. Most semi-tropical coffee-producing countries have up to two harvests in a year, one in mid or late spring and the second in the late autumn. The fruits or cherries have a deep red color and are not much bigger than the average cranberry. 
While some large producers use machines to harvest, the best way to ensure a good quality selection is hand-picking. Next, the cherries are taken to the facilities, where they will be processed. The two most common ways to get the seeds ready for roasting are the dry and wet methods. The wet method requires to submerge the cherries in water to separate unripe or sick fruits. The healthy cherries will sink at the bottom and they will be transferred to beds where the pulp will slowly ferment for 24 or 46 hours before rinsing off this fermented skin and pulp of the seed. The seeds or beans are laid to dry for several days in cement-covered patios. Farmers gently turn them with a wooden rack every 30 minutes or so, and this prevents the formation of mold. After this, the remaining dry skin that's still attached to the bean will be removed by hauling the beans in a dry mill, at which point the seeds will split and the individual halves, or beans, are now clean and ready to be selected and stored. The dry method, by comparison, begins by removing the pulp completely, and from there, the naked seeds are sent straight away to the drying patios. In high-tech processing plants, this stage can be done by using drying machines. Now, as I mentioned before, these are the two main methods of preparing the seeds. Selecting the beans. Contrary to what we might think, the quality of a good coffee is not only measured when the drink is served, it actually begins long before the beans are even roasted. This really starts right when the cherries are hand-picked, cleaned, and the beans are ready for selection. Coffee experts grade the dry beans by looking for consistent color, hardness, any damages, weight and texture, among many other details. Once each batch of a crop is graded, the beans are ready to either be exported, stored or roasted. Roasting and grinding the beans this process not always takes place at the coffee farm facilities. Actually, many companies, large and small, prefer doing these themselves to control all aspects of the final stage and will take care of the packaging and commercialization to present it to the consumer. Roasting machines provide a controlled and constant source of dry heat and also movement to evenly roast the beans. This will completely eliminate all residual humidity and the intensity or darkness of the roasting will help release the natural oils of the seed and produce different flavors, aromas and densities of the drink. Most commercial brands of coffee from transnational companies by the likes of Nestlé, Nero, Starbucks, Costa, Ili, Kraft and Coop Cafe don't actually grow coffee. They do the second part that I just mentioned, by importing, roasting, grinding, packaging, making coffee-based drinks and selling them to the public. And these are broadly all the stages of the coffee production chain. 
as our awareness about the social and environmental impact of the coffee industry has increased, so have our consumption habits. And by choosing to buy directly from producers, we are effectively contributing to making a direct impact in the lives of coffee farmers and coffee-producing countries. Our education about coffee making has also changed the way we consume it. Mm, for instance, it is really interesting to see how the coffee culture in Mexico has rapidly changed over the last two decades. Like the rest of food traditions in this country, the social aspects of conviviality always come first than the actual foods or drinks, and coffee is no exception. While most urban young adults have incorporated coffee into their morning rituals, the drink is actually far from being a national breakfast staple. Its appreciation is actually framed um, by the social function it has as a mid-morning or post-meal or late-evening pretext to meet up with co-workers, friends and loved ones to relax. Earlier this year, when I attended the Latin American Coffee Summit, I had the chance to talk to many producers, traders and representatives of coffee organizations. And there was a consistent acknowledgement that the coffee culture in Mexico is changing, but it is also weaving into our cultural practices. While now more and more people consume it, and they are even opting out for higher quality coffees, the way of enjoying it has continued to have a big social emphasis. Nowadays, Mexico occupies the 11th position among the top organic coffee producers in the world. Most of this valuable production is destined to the American and European markets. And while this is really good news, Mexican coffee actually is facing many challenges, and it has for many years. One of them is the international market zone fluctuations. Because of variations in the supply and demand of coffee around the world, the prices affect directly the economy of thousands of farmers. Another type of threat are plagues, such as the coffee leaf rust, known in Spanish as roya. The roya bleaches and dries the leaves, killing the plant because they can no longer photosynthesize the sunlight. This disease alone cut in half the total production of coffee in Mexico in the last three years. An article published by D.R. Wakefield, a British coffee trading company, highlights what makes the coffee production in Mexico very attractive for socially responsible companies, and is actually the increasing number of farming co-ops that ensures fair prices and minimizes the risk of abuse and corruption. This model, they praise, owes its success to the civic organization and is by far one of the most successful social businesses movements in the world. Each of the producing regions in Mexico has distinctive flavors and profiles. For instance, Oaxacan coffee is known for its chocolate-like aftertaste, while Veracruz varieties are richer with nutty and sweet notes, and actually even citrusy. Poblano coffee has unique caramel and walnut-like flavors, and Chiapas produces cherry chocolate-like aromas. Now, 
the largest producers of coffee in Latin America remain to be Brazil, Colombia, and Honduras, primarily. And this is because of the volume that their agro-industry can handle. And while Mexico can't really compete in the same way, it has opted out for a strategy of a smaller production of extremely good quality coffee, which has consistently gained international recognition. This has marked a new era for Mexican speciality coffee. And no, it has nothing to do with curled mustaches and hipster dens serving coffee in jam jars. It is not quite what you think. And let me explain first what it is not a speciality coffee. You might have heard about cold brewing, drip coffee maker, French press, espresso machines, mocha pots, aeropress, and hand pressos. Well, all of these are tools or gadgets that provide different methods of extraction or brewing that will produce different densities in the drink and bring out distinct flavors and aromas. But that it is not what makes a speciality coffee. Instead, these are all the characteristics to consider. First, it is all in the bean. There are two main varieties of coffee plants, Arabica and Robusta. Arabica variety produces a big range of flavors and notes. It is delicate and easily spoiled. Robusta, on the other hand, has a much bitter, deeper taste, and it has less layers of flavors and it is considered as inferior to Arabica, in spite of how easy it is to grow it in comparison. So aspect one, you have to start with a 100% batch of Arabica beans. Next comes the combination of the region in the world where it is produced, the altitude, the acidity of the soil, the age of the plant, the types of crops that grow in the vicinity that affect the flavor of the beans. It is really important to maintain a strict quality control during the harvesting, selection, cleaning, drying and storing of the beans. And all of these aspects are actually graded by professionals using a set of scores that must range between 80 and 100 points to be considered a speciality. The care, or lack of it, in any step can make or break a whole harvest. And bear in mind that all of this happens way before roasting, grinding and brewing. In short, for a coffee to be considered a speciality, it requires of the specialized combined work and knowledge of farmers, buyers, roasters and baristas to reach a consumer who, by this point, is often quite the connoisseur who is not afraid to spend what's needed on this type of coffee. The cost of a single cup of speciality coffee can range between 6 and 16 US dollars. But the value is placed not only in the supreme quality of the drink, which in itself is the whole reason for the existence of the mammoth effort behind it, 
but you are actually buying into the whole ethos of the production chain. Now, will you like the speciality coffee more than your regular favorite coffee? Not necessarily. Actually, I'm not embarrassed to say that at this year's Latin American Coffee Summit, I tried four espressos of different speciality coffees, all Mexican and all winners of multiple international accolades. I noted satsuma, honey, flowers and chocolate in the aftertaste. They were like nothing I had ever had before, and they almost didn't taste like coffee at all. At least, not what we tend to associate with the most common flavors of coffee. But you know what? I still like my flat whites and café au lait. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, because if you have the chance to experience this type of product, do it. But remember that in the end, coffee is like wine. The best one is the one you like. In any case, the key aspect here is that while I'm perfectly happy drinking a home-brewed coffee every day without getting a mortgage to support my habit, I can still, like you, opt out for buying socially and environmentally produced coffee that will not only contribute to a personal ethical satisfaction, it can also be perfectly affordable and delicious. To close down this section, I want to introduce you to what a cup of excellence is. You see, the world of coffee is really fascinating, and that is why it attracts so many enthusiasts who educate themselves to become actual connoisseurs, you know, like wine or craft beer appreciators. And even if you are not planning on becoming an expert, I think knowing more about it will make your enjoyment even nicer. Taza de Excelencia, or Cup of Excellence, is a prestigious international competition celebrated every year, and it was created by the Nonprofit Alliance for Coffee Excellence. And, as it is explained on their website, this is the equivalent of the Oscars of the coffee world. But in all fairness, it is mm, actually a relatively new competition that started only in 1999. And actually, this year, 2018, Mexico was the host of the Cup of Excellence competition. The jury has to analyze and evaluate hundreds of submissions from all around the world. And those that score from 86 to 100 can enter the final selection. The impact of this competition is of paramount importance for producers, because all the evaluations become their credentials to enter international auctions to sell tons of high-quality coffee at premium prices. On the blog post of this episode, I will post links and a video about this competition. We will return with the last part of the show after this short break. Sabor, This is Mexican Food is a digital editorial project that celebrates the wonderful world of Mexican gastronomy, the flavors, ingredients and traditions that have shaped this world-acclaimed cuisine. And now you can purchase and download a bundle containing all four available issues, the origins, go-go, street food and Mexican fiestas. 
Enjoy 23 thought-provoking articles and stunning photography that opens a window to understand and appreciate Mexico's rich culinary traditions. And unveil the secrets to prepare 43 delicious recipes that bring families together and will help you enjoy the making of your own traditions. Go to pastachipotle.com forward slash magazine and get your bundle of sabor. Enjoy it in all your digital devices. Go to pastachipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you've never imagined. close down this episode, here's a few final thoughts. Coffee, like coco, is one of those prodigious plants whose fruits have reached every corner of the world, transformed landscapes, tastes, costumes, and rituals. And while coffee is of course not native to Mexico, we are grateful for the serendipitous events that led it to reach this side of the world. And to remind ourselves, why should we drink it? Let's consider these facts by the American Journal of Gastroenterology, the American Heart Association, and the World Health Organization. Fact number one. Caffeine is a stimulant, as we know, but what kind of stimulant exactly? Well, it is a psychoactive, meaning it gives a rush of energy to your brain enhancing neurotransmitters that release dopamine, which controls our feelings of happiness and motivation. See, it's a great way to start your day. Fact number two. It increases the speed of your metabolism, helping you perform better when exercising. That is, if you don't order a cream and sugar loaded bomb, of course. Fact number three. It has been proven to help leveling insulin and prevent, in many cases, certain types of diabetes. Again, please don't go asking for unicorn drinks. Fact number four. Coffee can also lower the risk of developing liver cancer. And last but not least, coffee is loaded with antioxidants, which, in short, slows down the aging process of your body. Now, I really don't want to miss the chance to encourage you one more time to try Mexican coffee. And if you can, make it a fair trade and certified as organic. This will not only ensure the quality of your drinks, yummy, but it will also help farmers and the environment. Not only Mexican coffee is gaining recognition outside Mexico, inside too, because there is an increasing number of events with traders, farmers and roasters promoted by associations like Amecafe, which is the Mexican association of the coffee production chain, and AMCE, the Mexican association of specialty coffee shops. And some of these high-profile events, where traders from around the world come, are Expo Café and Gourmet, the Latin American Coffee Summit and Expo Café. I have to confess that I have been to all of them on many occasions and have come out pretty loaded with caffeine in my system and also in bags, of course. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and has helped you gain more perspective and appreciation about coffee. 
And if you are thinking about opening a cafe or are a coffee enthusiast or a declared coffee head, well, go to my website and get all the links mentioned on today's episode. As for me, well, I'm gonna finish this one with some biscuits. Oh, this is good. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipotle.com. The show is available to download and subscribe on any of your favorite podcast providers and, of course, the visual version on YouTube. Support the show via Patreon. Patreon is the largest platform that connects independent creators like myself with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast and be part of this delicious story. The next episode of the show continues with the all-star lineup of guests. This time, all the way from Oslo, Norway, chef Silvia Vavik, who has made a name for herself by winning the 2015 edition of Norway's Grill Master, and she now runs regular private cooking classes, pop-ups, and caters for special events, including the celebrations at the Mexican Embassy in Norway. I love hearing your thoughts about the episodes, so please send me your comments and even ideas for future topics you would like to listen. As always, you can reach me via Instagram, find me as rocio.carvajalc, via Twitter as at Chipotle Podcast, and if you prefer an email, you can write me at hello at pazdechipotle.com. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>